All right, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter one, we're gonna be this morning. If you got a Bible on you this morning, go to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there are people coming up the aisles right now who have Bibles in their hands. If you need one, throw your hand up, grab one of these so you can follow along in the book of Luke as we uh, read through this this morning. So go ahead and throw your hand up. If you don't own a Bible, grab one of these, take it home as our gift to you. Luke chapter one, so it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we're gonna be in chapter one this morning. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna spend in the book of Luke, going through Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two together and all leading up to Christmas Eve, which, man, I'm so excited for Christmas Eve, all right? I hope you guys are already praying what God's gonna do Christmas Eve. Let, let me let you know how it normally rolls here. Christmas Eve for us, as far as inviting neighbors and friends out, it's our biggest, our biggest uh, service of the year, way bigger than our Easter service would ever be. Here's why I think. I think this, because my, my, my friends and neighbors and family members who don't know Jesus, they're, they're a little easier with baby Jesus than Jesus on the cross, all right? So they're like, oh, I'll come for baby Jesus. That's cool, right? So here's the thing. Let's use this opportunity. We have a couple of opportunities for you. If We have uh, on Christmas Eve in Perry Sound, we're having a Christmas Eve service, and then also in uh, in. Bracebridge on the 24th of Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. and here in this location on the 23rd at 6 p.m. Why two different nights? Um, because um, Eric was is building together a, a worship team, a music thing that's gonna just be amazing. And for him to put two together this year would be a little much to split that up And as we're new to this whole two uh, locations here, the, the third location in Huntsville. So we're doing on the 23rd to the 24th. Why does Bracebridge get the 24th? They, they have a bigger facility. We, we just kind of anticipate that because of tradition, a, a lot of people will hit up the 24th because that's what Christmas Eve is. I've got to do it on Christmas Eve. And so they have the bigger facility to be able to hold that many people. We have the smaller facility here. Um, but here's the thing. If, if, if you guys are like, you're like inviting so many people and, and so you're like, wait a minute, man, like I got like 30 people coming. I'm inviting everybody. Then we will add another service here. We'll let you know that if we need to, we can do two services here on the 23rd. All right. So we can, we can do that. And, and as you're thinking about that, on your way out, there are invite cards. We'd love to get into your hands so you can invite people. You've got something to give them. But also, you're going to notice by the fireplace out there, there's a wall that says prayer this Christmas. And what that is, is on the table out there, there's this, uh, cards and, and pens and little, little um, clothespins where, where if you're praying for somebody, just by a way of just a commitment, by a way of just making it a visual thing, like, man, this is something I'm committed to so we all can be praying as well. Just write a person's name, just a first name on there, whatever, or, or, or my neighbor or whatever you want to write. Just write that on there, pin it on the little strings. It's very Pinteresty. It looks really cool, all right? And pin it on there, okay? And, and, and we'll be praying, and we'll be praying for those. And if that thing is filled up and it's like just crammed full of those, we're like, maybe we need another service in Huntsville, all right? So would you, would you make Christmas Eve a matter of prayer. We have seen uh, so many people, that's the first time they're introduced to the gospel. So many testimonies. People say, you know what? It was, it was that one year someone invited me out to Christmas Eve. I heard the gospel. I then kind of stayed away a little more, but then I kind of came because church wasn't so weird to me and people show up and begin to hear the gospel again and again and then eventually uh, lives change forever. So be praying about that. Fill out those prayer cards, grab some invite cards, clip the prayer cards on there so we can be praying together, all right? Okay, let's jump into Luke. Luke. This is a series we're calling Fear Not. Fear Not. Why? Why? Because in, in Luke's account, when he, he lays out what happened that, that very first Christmas, you see this phrase over and over again, do not be afraid. Fear not. Three times in two chapters, we hear this phrase, do not be afraid. I, I think God's maybe trying to tell us something. Right? We don't have to fear. And isn't it amazing how much pain and, and suffering, how much how much 
suffering from our past or, or shame from our past or even things we're going through right now, difficulties, they, they team up with our fear to create doubt and unbelief. And there, there can be this, this huge tug of war between, between God's promises to us and our fears. And, and today we're gonna focus our attention on the first time we hear this phrase, don't be afraid, fear not, with this guy named Zechariah. If I look at verse five of Luke chapter one, it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So verse five starts out, that it, Luke's kind of, he's, he's centering us in, hey, when did this happen? It happened the time of Herod. So we know the, the time it happened because there was this certain priest. Now here's the thing about that description. It's not the most glamorous of descriptions. Because yeah, there was this, this certain priest. You're like, well, well, a priest, I mean, that kind of makes the person a bit special, doesn't it? At the time of, of Israel right here, he would have been this guy, Zechariah would have been one of 18,000 priests. He goes, he was a certain priest. He goes, he was an amazing priest. He was a, a noble priest. He was a brilliant priest. He was a certain priest, just one of the 18,000, a regular kind of dude, just one of many. He, he married this girl named Elizabeth. She was of the sons of Abraham as well. She was a daughter of Abraham, meaning that her parents, her dad would have been a priest as well. Her grandfather would have been a priest. So he kind of just marries the girl who's in the same family business pretty much, right? Just this regular couple, a couple of nobodies. But look at verse six, it says something about them. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Here's what Luke's saying. These guys were righteous before God. Now, you understand if you read through the, through the gospel of Luke, Luke has a, a way of contrasting people. And then one of his favorite contrasts would be busted up people who, who love Jesus compared to, to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were, they were self-righteous. They weren't truly righteous before God. They would be self-righteous. They would be religiously outside following all the rules with their hearts far from God. But here we hear that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they walked blamelessly. So they, they were they were morally upright, but also they would have had this love for God. But they had a problem. Look at verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So, so here they are, this couple, in the midst of being so faithful to God, living every day, facing this reality that they were barren and not just barren, not just without child, but they're old. In that culture, if you didn't have kids, it was disastrous for you, socially and economically disastrous. Economically, because, because kids in that time, as you raise kids, it was your kids who would take care of you as you got older. This is, this is pre-RRSP, right? This is pre-retirement homes. This is kind of, this was their way of, I'm gonna be okay as I get older because I have all these kids and, and hopefully a couple of them will take care of me, all right? Socially, it was a problem as well. Because if you, were, if you were somebody who had no kids in this culture, they would see you as being somebody who God does not approve of. They, they would say, oh, God must be punishing you. You must have sin in your heart. And so Elizabeth would walk around and people would kind of look at her with this sideways glance and, and, and they spend their whole lives then begging God, pleading for a child. And, and you think of the deep sorrow of, of wanting children, not being able to have them. Then you, you add to that the pain and frustration and despair of living in a society where, where you would be considered some sort of a sinner for it, that, that people would think God's mad at you. 
When you think about when you're on the mountaintop, how easy it is to believe that God is with us. How easy it is to understand, man, I've got God's presence because things are going good. When, when you get good news, when, when you get a raise, when your baby finally sleeps through the night, right? God is good to me, right? You start to feel that, right? When you get that parking spot in the mall and it's close, it's the Lord's blessing on me. His presence is with me, right? It's easy to feel that presence of God when things are going good, but it can be so much harder when, when you're not on the mountaintop. You're actually walking through a valley. You're actually finding yourself in the wilderness and, and things aren't going the way you want them to go. And you get bad news or you're hurting or when you feel alone or, or when you're worried or when you're afraid. And, and some of you right now here this morning, you would say, man, that's me right now. I'm in that wilderness. I'm in that valley. And, you, and you've been faithful, but, it's, but it seems like disappointment meets around every corner of your life. And, and maybe for you, it's, it's personal disappointment or, or, or maybe there's financial disappointment or, or maybe physical disappointment or, or mental or emotional disappointment or, or maybe it's, it's social and, and relationally things aren't just going the way you'd want them to go. And maybe you're here this morning, you're, you're so disappointed, disappointed because you so desire to be married and yet it doesn't seem that God has it for you yet and you're, you're single and, and disappointed in that. Or maybe you're here and you are married, but you're disappointed. Man, my marriage has not turned out the way I thought it would. Or maybe you can relate to Zechariah and Elizabeth and you have no kids and so desperately want them or or maybe you have kids and you're brokenhearted over how things have gone with them. Maybe it's your financial situation, the job you're in, that you're, man, this job is not what I want, or maybe a lack of job and I, I just can't find one, or, or maybe there's a disappointment or fear as, as you look at your health, or, or maybe it's the health of people you love around you, or, or maybe it's just the, the depression and the, and, the, and the anxiety clings so tightly, and so what do we do? What can we learn from God's word this morning? Here's my first point this morning. And if you're someone who finds it hard to take notes, here's the good news for you. This is my only point this morning, right? We're gonna hit this nail over and over again. You're gonna hear this one or two. Second point, same as the first. Third point, same as the first. It's this, never let your fears redefine your faith. Never let your fears redefine your faith. I mean, you, you think of all the promises you read through Scripture and you see these promises over and over again, thousands of promises that are, that are just poured out on us from God. I mean, I think of Romans 8.28. There's a great promise that we can grab a hold of, Romans 8.28, that says that God works out everything for our good and His glory. That's a huge promise. I mean, if, if you think about it, that, that every bit of your life, every bit of joy, every bit of sorrow, every detail, every millisecond of your life is, is in God's sovereign plan for you. And it's given for your good and for his glory. I mean, doesn't this change how we look at joy? Doesn't this change how we even look at struggles to think that, man, you mean every joy, every sorrow, every mountaintop, every valley, all, all the feelings of despair or loneliness or frustration to think that God loves me in such an awesome way that he could even use the pain for my good to bring me into his grace? Or you think about this promise in Philippians 1.6 where it says, he who began a good work in me will complete it. 
That, that, that work of salvation, that, that work of grace that God started in you, God's saying, listen, I'm gonna carry you through right to the very end. He's not gonna leave you. He's not gonna abandon you, even when it feels like he's so far away. Do you, do you have those times when you're praying? It's like, man, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. They're not going any higher than that. This promise is for you that God's at work still, that he's, he's gonna finish his work of making you more like Jesus. What about Jeremiah 29, 13, where it says, as we call out to him, as we seek him, we will find him. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So many promises of hope, but, but what happens when your life looks more like Zechariah and Elizabeth? When those promises seem so far away, when our fear is louder than his promises and, and, and not just a moment of fear or doubt, but like the journey's been hard for like weeks or months or years. And here we have this couple, we have their story, this couple that they've clung tightly to God, Zechariah still with his wife, still, still encouraging people to, to give their prayers up to God, to follow God in faithfulness all the while, while he feels like his prayers are going unanswered. Look at verse eight. It says, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So it says here that his division of priesthood, so the priests are divided into 24 different categories, all based on, on, the, on Aaron's grandchildren. And so he's part of Abijah. That's his kind of division. And, and so his time to serve in the temple came up. And what would happen is they would basically draw lots. It's like a big lottery. Pull out a name and it'd be, hey, it's Zechariah. Woo! And you get to go into the temple to perform the duties of the temple of burning incense. It was a huge deal. In fact, such a big deal that if you got to do it once, you never got to do it again. They wanted to be sure, like, like every priest who, who could do this, and very rarely be able to, because like I said, 18,000 of them. Huge deal that Zechariah got to do this. Look at verse 10. It says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So, so we have this indication with a, a huge multitude of people. This is probably the evening prayers, the evening sacrifice. And, and so what would happen is Zechariah would enter into the temple. He'd go through the court of Gentiles and the court of women that, that only Gentiles and women were allowed to go in that culture that far. He would then go into the court of the priests, the court, past the court of Israel, into this court of priests, into this inner sanctuary. Only priests could go where he's going. You gotta think, he's never been there before. How cool is he? He's like, man, I get to do this and experience this. And he goes into this, this inner part. It's divided in two. There's this heavy curtain that separates the holy of holies, which represented the very presence of God. Only the high priest, only once a year, got to go in there. But he's, he's near it. He's right beside it. He, he goes in to do what he's called to do, and, and he wouldn't stay very long. They say the priest would go in and get out. Why? Because they were so nervous being that close to the, to the manifest presence of God. They're like, man, I don't want to mess anything up in here. I don't want to do something stupid and then just be out like that. Like, I, just, I want to get in and get out. What they would do, they would take coals off of the altar where, where the sacrifice had taken place. They would take those coals and somehow they would, they would pick those coals up. They would move them into this golden bowl and in that bowl, they would then put incense on that and the smoke, this, this aroma would rise up. As the people were praying, they'd see this pillar of smoke going up, basically representing this, that as they're praying, as they're praying for peace, as they're praying for joy, as they're praying for the Messiah to come, as they're praying prayers of thankfulness, all these prayers, as they're praying, they would see this representation of my prayers are going up as this aroma 
to the Lord. All that's going on. He's doing all of this, and look at verse 11. Look what happens. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, Luke, you understand something. Luke is a physician. The guy writing this, he's a physician. He's like all fact going on. And you're writing this, like, yep, and there's an angel. And he's standing to the right of the altar. Like that's, he's just like, here it is. Here's what's going on. And I, I love that. I love that. Luke writing to this guy, Theophilus. And he says, I'm writing this to you. I'm writing this, this, this account to you based on eyewitnesses because I want you to know the facts surrounding Jesus. I want you to know the details. And so he, he doesn't embellish anything at all. I mean, I love that. If, you, if you're writing fiction or if you're trying to make up a religion and you're going to talk about an angel coming in, you'd probably be a little more dramatic than, oh, and an angel was just there. Standing to the right of the altar of incense. You gotta, I mean, this is 400 years of silence. They had not heard from God. And God sends a messenger. And Zechariah, I'm, I, why did he put, and he was to the right of the, I, I think of Zechariah, like, man, I can tell you exactly where he was. Zechariah's reaction to this amazing event, like was he overjoyed at this? Did he was just overcome with this peace because of a, the presence of an angel before him? No, look at verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. It says he was troubled. The word there means he was startled by it and fear fell upon him. Another way to say this, fear gripped him. He was terrified. You, you could say he was panicked. It's like that where you can't move. You want to run, you can't run. You want to scream, you can't scream. That's Zechariah. I mean, I've, I've said this a lot. We need to get out of our minds that, that what we think angels look like, kind of the, the way we kind of in our time, that, well, angels are these naked babies in diapers with bows and arrows and harps, right? Obviously not that. You are not gripped with fear. Would you be freaked out if you saw that for sure? But you would not be gripped in fear. This is a warrior messenger from God standing in front of Zechariah. And all through scripture, you always see the same reaction. Every time, and I think angels must rehearse in heaven. Oh yeah, by the way, when I get there, first thing I gotta remember to say, don't be afraid. Because every time they show up, people are just floored by their presence. What's the angel say? Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, why not be afraid? Here's why. The angel was not coming with judgment. Listen, God does judge sin and, and, and the closer you get to understanding who God is, the closer you get to God's holiness, the more your sin is revealed. I'm sure Zechariah in that moment felt undone. You, you stand in the presence of holiness. Man, it shines so brightly on your heart. You're like, ah, look at this sin here being exposed. And, and, and in that, there can be this legitimate fear as you stand in holiness. But this isn't a judgment visit. What is this visit about? Well, look, look at, what the angel says, verse 13. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. That, 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 that moment you would, you would expect that Zechariah's fear now turned into astonishment, right? Now it's, now it's not the shock of terror, it's the shock of disbelief. He'd be like, are you kidding me? And he says, no, I'm not. N name him John. John, that name means God is gracious. God is about to unleash this, this display of grace like it's never been seen before, this display of grace. You can read about it in, in verses 14 to 17. Follow along. It says this, and you will have joy and gladness and many will receive at his birth. 
for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. What's he doing? John is going to be this guy going before to get people ready for Jesus. I mean, and what a great name, amen. And what a, what a great name he's given to do this job. He's going to say, I'm gonna make you ready for Jesus. And his name is God is gracious. So much better than, hey, here's the one making the way for Jesus. And his name means God is pretty ticked off at you, right? God has had it up to here with you. No, his name is God is gracious. God is coming with grace. What is grace? We define grace as this. It's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Favor meaning that, that, that God says, I, I want the best for you. I want to give you every opportunity. You're favored. You're, you get everything you need with favor. So to say that God has grace for you, it's God looking to you saying, you're my favorite. That's grace. <laughs> and it's, it's not just favor, it's unmerited favor. Unmerited, I mean, it's, it's free, it's, it's unearned. It's unearnable. And, and in fact, grace is so awesome, it's given to people who, who actually deserve the opposite of it. But then grace steps in, and it doesn't make any sense that grace would step in and just be given to us where God says, I wanna save you. All the things you've done, all the sin, all the guilt, erase it. Stuff you hope no one finds out about. God's like, I know about it all, but I'm going to erase it all. You don't have to pay for any of it. In fact, I'm going to make my son pay for all of it. And Jesus steps into your place, and you get forgiveness by putting your hope and your trust in Jesus. thinking, wait a minute, really? Like, that, that, that's it? Just Jesus, I, I get to walk into heaven because of grace? Like, all my sin, all my past, I accept the sacrifice of Christ, and I'm changed. I, I go from being condemned in my sin to being set free, bound for glory. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that, that, that's grace. That's what grace is. And, and this, this baby, this, this little boy being born named John, God is grace. He, he's going to point people to Jesus, to God the Son, to, to the one who's coming to save them from their sin, to save us from our sin. Jesus who pays our debt, who takes our judgment. And then when you accept this free gift of grace, you are set free, completely free. No sin unaccounted for. Complete forgiveness at the cross. And then in Jesus Christ, God, then in that moment, you, you think of Zechariah and you think of Elizabeth with this great need they have and what they're hearing from this angel is, listen, God's actually taking care of an even greater need you have, the greatest need you have, your separation from God. So that, so that in trials that may come in the here and now, that as a Christ follower, you can stand with hope on this truth to say, listen, I know stuff's hard, but I've got Jesus. My, my present may be hard, it might be difficult, but my future is sure, is secure. Listen, never let your fears redefine your faith. 
Maybe you're like, you know what? It's not the troubles in life. It's my, it's what I've done. It's the shame I have, the guilt I have, the horrible things I've done. And you'd be sitting here thinking, yeah, but you don't know who I am. And I've been a thief. I've, I've, I've cheated on my spouse. I've, I've abandoned my kids. I've lied my way through life. I've, I've had and hidden an abortion and carried that with me. I, I struggle with substance abuse. My, my mouth gets the best of me. And Listen, when your fears come in and begin to remind you of all those things to say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you can speak back to that fear. Don't let your fear redefine your faith because you can say right to that same fear, good, I'm a sinner. It's comforting to hear that because I see in scripture that Jesus died for sinners. And I'm so thankful you you look through scripture, you see example after example of those who were so far from God. And God says, I'm going to choose this one. I'm going to use this. I'm going to take Moses, a guy who was a murderer, a guy who spent 40 years looking after sheep, a guy who who could barely speak. And God says, I'm going to use you as one of the greatest leaders in history. God takes David, a a murderer and an adulterer. I mean, this guy sleeps with his friend's wife and then has his friend killed to cover up the fact that he slept with his wife. David was not a good guy. But he repented and God called him this. He said, David's a man after my own heart. He has favor. You have Peter in the New Testament. Peter actually denies Christ, deserts Christ, thought he could never be used again. Like he was on his way to being in ministry. Jesus is gonna use me to do great things. He does that and says, I'm done. I must be done. I can't, Jesus will never use me again. And Jesus steps in, restores him and gives him leadership of the early church. I mean, praise God that that God is a God who loves screw-ups, amen? Right? And all the screw-ups said amen, right? Like, that's just awesome. He, he loves the broken. He loves the messed up. God loves to be glorified by, by using those who, who the world would consider wrecked and unusable. And God steps in. And, and here, again, he comes to this nobody couple who were barren, no kids, no hope of kids. They're in despair. And God comes to them and says, I got good news for you. I have a gift of grace for you. Never let your fears redefine your faith. Now listen to Zechariah's response to this great news, verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What's what he saying? He's going, mm, you don't know the years of disappointment. And, and, and forget the years I've been asking and begging for this. Man, I'm an old man and my wife, she's advanced in years. That that phrase there, advanced in years, it's the same phrase used in Genesis. Genesis 18, verse 11, we're talking about Abraham and Sarah. They were advanced in years. And then when the apostle Paul in Romans 4 talks about how old Abraham and Sarah were, well, what's advanced in years mean? Paul uses this phrase, they they were as good as dead. That's that's pretty old, I think, right? So so here what Zechariah is saying, he goes, are you kidding me? I'm old. My wife's as good as dead, right? That's what he said. Husbands, not a good thing to say, all right? Poor Zechariah, not realizing it will be written down in Scripture for all eternity, right? (laughs) Yes, I know I called you that. I get it. Listen, there are over 3,000 promises in God's Word. But when the Holy Spirit whispers those promises to us, the enemy seems to yell back at us with fear and doubt. 
We can respond to this promise of God with faith. We can respond to them with fear and doubt, fear that comes out of or leads to hopelessness, fear that leads to or comes out of bitterness. In fact, I love how Tim Keller says this about worry. He says, worry is not believing God will get it right. Bitterness is believing God got it wrong. Worry is not believing God will get it right. Bitterness is believing God, you got this wrong. And, and what it does is we can look at God then with, with confusion, with anger, doubting his love, doubting his character, doubting his care, sometimes even doubting that God is real rather than responding in faith. Now, here's what responding in faith looks like, though. I love reading through the Psalms. You, you see a faithful response as, as the psalmists call out, and they're like, God, you confuse me, you frustrate me, but I know you're real and you have my best interests even when I don't feel it. That's response of faith. Zechariah, he responds out of fear, responds out of self-pity, really. And he's saying to this messenger, I don't believe you. Like, why now? Like, like it's been a long time. How can I even trust you? I mean, this message sounds too good to be true. I, I get it. I get it. You're an angel. You're a messenger from God. But I think you're kind of like the spam messenger, right? You're kind of like the Nigerian prince who's promising me that I got an inheritance, Right? Maybe you've been there before and you're like, God, your promises don't seem real. They seem like a spam email to me. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. I mean, I love this. That, it kind of seems like the angel's a little bit ticked, doesn't it? Like Gabe's like, do you know who I am? Right? Like, are you kidding me? Bro, bro, I'm the one who spoke to Daniel and came to him when he was praying. I, I just came. He's saying, I just came from the presence of God. Like, God doesn't send me texts for a message to deliver. Like, no, I'm in the throne room and he gives me the message himself and I come down to deliver this. This is from God that I'm giving you this message. Zechariah, he's understandably afraid, understandably he's full of doubt. So Gabriel goes, do you understand what I'm, like, you were just wetting your robe when you saw me. And now you're like, I'm not sure you can do this, right? Gabriel, really, I think by act of grace, though, he goes, let me, let me help you with your doubt. Look at verse 20. Gabriel says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is like a, the, a heavenly timeout, right? You ever do with your kids? You're going to the corner. I don't want to hear you anymore. Just be quiet. Like that's what Zechariah is getting a bit, a bit of a time out from, from Gabriel here. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. So he's still inside the temple and this is going on. And, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Like, why is he coming out? Like he should be coming out now. And when he came out, he was able, unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and he remained mute and when the time of service was ended, he went to his home. So he still serves. He keeps doing what he's supposed to do. That week he was serving. Then he goes home. And I'm sure you've been there where, where the promises of God, just like Zechariah, you think this is crazy. This, this can't be true because God, look at my past. God, God, look at the situations I'm wrestling with right now. Look, look how long I've struggled with this. And the fear becomes louder than the promise. Imagine being Gabriel. So, I mean, I thought this, this is kind of a side thing. Like, you finally get to deliver this awesome news, right? You're going down to deliver this great news. Like, man, I can't wait to tell. Zechariah and Sarah have been praying for this. This is going to be awesome. You go down, you're like, Zechariah, your prayer's been answered. And Zechariah's like, mm, I'm going to need more proof. Right? 
But he, here's Zechariah. He is this super religious guy. He's a guy who would be in church every Sunday. He'd be leading in the church. He'd be serving. He'd be giving. But listen, he has very little joy in the promises of God. So what does the angel do? The angel shuts him up for nine months. Why? Why would, why would God allow that to happen? Because Zechariah's response to this promise of God was, I don't believe it. And here's why I don't believe it. Here's this. Well, there's this, there's this, there's this. And, and tell you what, you answer my questions and, and then maybe, then maybe I'll believe. But I don't understand how you're going to work this out. And there's this heart that's actually full of pride. It's full of doubt that God's even capable of doing what he promises. And his fear and his doubt now define his faith. His fear and his doubt, they now speak louder than the power and the authority of God. And so to heal Zechariah of this doubt, of this fear, to heal him, to, to heal his heart, God's gonna do a work in Zechariah that requires Zechariah to spend a little extra time with God. You know what? You're, you're gonna be quiet for a while. In fact, we read later on in Luke chapter one, not only could he, could he not speak, he actually couldn't hear either. People were doing signs to him as well. He goes, you're gonna be quiet before me, God says. This is actually God's grace on display in Zechariah's life here. God, God was not willing to let him just stay in his doubt, in his fear. God was not willing to let him stay in this joyless service of him. And so listen, when God puts a heavy hand on your life, when you feel the weight of God's hand, it's not because he doesn't love you. Like, I'm so convinced of this. I've seen it so much in my life and in, in my life as a pastor over these past 20 years of, of doing ministry. I've seen this, that when you don't feel God's hand on you and you're in sin, that's a very scary place to be. God's grace is when he says, I don't want you to keep living like this. I don't want you to keep having this sin in your life. I don't want you to keep going in this direction. So he presses in as an act of grace saying, I love you too much to let you stay like this, pursuing your sin, pursuing bitterness, left in your anger, left in your self-pity, left in your despair. And so God says, listen, I'm gonna do a work in your heart. I'm gonna do a work in your life. And it's surgery. It's gonna take some cutting. It's not gonna feel comfortable, but there's healing in it. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth bears a son, says his, the reproach. People looking at her with, with shame is now being removed from her. She's like, I can't believe my prayers have been answered. In fact, look, look over to verse 67. The rest of this chapter, verse 67 to 79, I'm giving you some homework. Read through that today or sometime this week. This is the praise that comes out of Zechariah's mouth. Zechariah, in that moment when the baby's born, and they ask him, hey, what are you going to call this baby? Are you going to call him Zechariah? Are you going to name him after you? And he's like, no, no, no. And they're signing at him. He finally says, get me a, a tablet. And he writes, his name is John. Because the angel told him, right? In that moment, his mouth is loosed. He's able to speak again. And he comes out with this praise. Nine months of silence with God. And what's he, what's he then praise God for? When you read through this, he thanks God for the Messiah. He thanks God for Jesus coming. What did he do in those nine months of quiet time with God? He learned that his ultimate hope was not in having a child. His ultimate hope was in Jesus. The eternal hope of his salvation. The, the hope that we can have in the midst of trials. The hope we have in the middle of the wilderness. In, in that fear and doubt that, that, listen, we don't just get small blessings things from God. We get Jesus. Never let your fears redefine your faith. 
In fact, take, take your Bibles and flip over to Romans chapter 8. I quoted Romans 8, 28, for all things work together. To those who love God, they work together for good. Romans, just keep going to your right through the Gospels and Acts, and you'll hit Romans. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 28 again. It says, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Really, really, that, 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 that's a promise I can grab a hold of. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed in the image of his son. That's the hope we have, that God is working out everything for our sanctification, for us to be more like Jesus. In fact, look at verse 31. See the context of this. Well, yeah, but what about when life's hard? What about when life's difficult? Look, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me ask you this. I mean, this is the crux of what's going on here. This is, this is the question that, that if we're, if we're gonna make any sense of this, we gotta wrestle with this question. For, for those of you who, who, who know Jesus this morning, you, you've given your life, you've put your hope in Christ. Here's the question you have to wrestle with. Do you believe that he loves you? I, mean, I honestly think that's the question. Do you believe he loves you? Do, do you think that he's vindictive or angry at you? Do, do you feel like he's aloof and uncaring? Or do you think that he loves you? You say, you know what? All the distress, all the persecution, all the difficultness, all the nakedness, all the sword, it doesn't separate me from his love. My deepest prayer for, for us as a church is this, that we would hear this promise louder than our fears that right now, right now, Jesus loves you. He, he loves you enough, listen, to even allow suffering. He loves you enough for, for you to be in a place that's hard, where, where your heart becomes exposed. You begin to see even more clearly. He, he loves you enough. Listen, this verse, these verses here, he loves you enough to be crucified for you. He loves you enough to call you to himself, to pour out his favor on you. Do you know that he loves you? Do you, do you know that nothing can separate you from that love? Not sickness, not death, not persecution, not your own failings. We struggle and, and, and sin and we, we, we struggle with, with, with difficulties in our lives and we think, man, man, will God ever have anything to do with me? And, and then God looks at us and goes, God, look at how broken and messed up I am. And you gotta understand something, that God sees your brokenness, your rebellion even, as this amazing opportunity to glorify his name as you're redeemed, as you're saved from it. Do you believe that he loves you? That he loves you not because of what you've done, not because you're doing something so great. I mean, I love the verse in Isaiah 64, 6 that says that all our good works are like filthy rags. Even the good stuff you do, 
It's, a, it's like a filthy, it's like that. You ever have that like that when you leave the dishcloth in the sink for way too long? You ever have that? You go, like, let me see if this one's okay. Right? It's just awful, right? And, and listen, that, that feeling, that, that grossness, that's your good works compared to God's holiness, right? Wow. God loves you not based on your stuff, not based on what you do, but because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is because of his grace. I mean, do you believe that he loves you? Because if, if we can get there, if we can rest there, we get to rest. Even when, when difficulties come, even when distress comes, even when we're betrayed, even when, when our health disappears, even when our marriage is difficult, even when our child goes astray, even when, listen, listen, Zechariah's name, do you know what it means? It means God remembers. <coughs> listen, God remembers. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten your prayers. He hasn't forgotten his promises towards you. So as the worst team comes up, as we end off this morning, let, let me challenge you with this. Don't let your fears redefine your faith. Don't stop believing. Don't stop crying out to him. Don't give in to the fear. Don't give in to the disappointment because God's desire for you is to give you his presence. So don't be afraid. Let's pray. Let me right where you are right now before we uh, worship together.